I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Last episode, I went over the various storm gods of Hittite mythology. Today, I'm going to talk about the different gods and goddesses the Hittites associated with the sun. Last episode, I primarily talked about Tarhun, the main storm god, and also the most important god in the Hittite pantheon in general. I told how he maintained order, and fought against monstrous serpents that threatened to destroy that order. I also mentioned how Tarhun was married to the goddess Wurunshimu, who is sometimes called Araniti, after the Hittite city that was the center of her worship. Together, Tarhun and Wurunshimu were very important to the Hittite royal family. They were considered protectors of the entire kingdom, and the name Wurunshimu actually means something like the queen of the land, they were worshipped together in the largest temple located at the Hittite capital city, Hattusa. Last episode, I talked about how the sons of Tarhun were also weather gods, either being directly referred to as storm gods of various specific locations, or, like Telepinu, described as having power over storms. You could say that they all took after their father. The mother, though, Wurunshimu, was not a storm goddess. Instead, she was a sun goddess. She used eagles as messengers, and deer were sacred to her. She also liked apple trees. There is a fragment of text that describes a blood-red apple tree growing next to a well, and how Warren Shimu decorated this apple tree, almost like a Christmas tree. I wish I could tell you more about her, since she was so important to the Hittites, but unfortunately, the surviving Hittite tablets do not record many of her myths. The daughter of Warren Shimu was Missoula, or Tapinu, a name which means her daughter. Missoula's daughter was in turn named Zintui, meaning granddaughter. Both of these goddesses, the daughter and the granddaughter, were closely linked to Wurunshimu. Worshippers would invoke them as intermediaries to bring prayers to Wurushimu. All of these goddesses were originally worshipped by the Hadian people, that very early group of communities that later merged with the Neshites to form the Hittites. In the later time of the Hittite Empire, when the Hittite royal family began an official process of identifying Hittite gods with similar Hurrian ones, Araniti was identified with a goddess named Hobat. In the ever-expanding collection of Hittite gods, Wurushimu was not the only solar goddess. There was also a male sun god, referred to as the sun god of heaven. I will refer to him with the Hittite words Nepashash Ishanu. He was considered a protector of the Hittite king, and was an important oath god. When I talked about the origins of the Hittites, I mentioned how the Neshites migrated into the area where the Hattians lived and merged with them. The Luwians were another people that migrated into Anatolia, but they settled more to the west of the Neshites. The Hittite sun god is like the Luwian sun god, Tiwaz. The Hittite sun god is also similar to one named Shemij, the sun god of the Hurrian people who lived to the south of the Hittites. There doesn't seem to have been a male sun god in the very early Hattian period. The Neshites probably lost their own Luwian-like sun god when they merged with the Hattians, taking the sun goddess for their own, and then afterwards getting a sun god back that was strongly influenced by the Hurrians and the later Luwians. Nevertheless, there are a handful of surviving Hittite myths that feature this sun god. Last episode, I shared a myth about how the god Telepinu gained a wife. That myth began with an incident involving the sun god, Nepashash Ishtanu. 
and the sea god, Aruna. Aruna was able to bring Nepashash down from heaven and trap him in the sea. Because the sun had now disappeared, the land became dark and conditions bad. Telepino went down to the sea and frightened Aruna so bad that the sea god gave back the sun god Nepashash and his own daughter. But there is also another myth that features Aruna making the sun god of heaven disappear. The surviving tablet begins with a plot by the sea god. He asks himself, if I seize the sun god and hide him, what can Tarhun, the storm god, do about it? Not much, he must have thought, as he goes forward with his plan. Aruna got a vessel, possibly a large jar or vase, and used it to set a trap for Nepashash Ishtanu. He says, now whenever the sun god falls, he will be caught. Somehow, the trap was sprung, and Nepashash Ishtanu either fell into the vessel or was convinced to enter it. He was captured when Aruna stoppered the vessel with copper and covered it with wax, sealing the sun god within. So, in this account, the sun god has also disappeared due to the schemes of the sea god. With the sun god captured, so is all his heat. The personification of frost is free to paralyze the land. The waters are described as drying up, which likely means that they are frozen by frost. The herbs, land, cattle, sheep, dogs, pigs, are all paralyzed and frozen. The gods wonder where the sun god is. Maybe he is dead, they say to each other. Tarhun even asks if a man has been killed, can he be restored to life? Tarhun tries to get his brother, the wind, to refresh the lands. But this does not work. The gods need the sun. They assume that he is not dead, but lost, and wonder where he could have gone. The gods decide to search for the sun god, but could not find him. In the meantime, Tarhun sends Rurokati, a warrior god, to defeat Frost. But Rurokati is unsuccessful, and instead Frost freezes him. Then, Tarhun sends another god, the tutelary deity. There were actually many tutelary deities in the Hittite religion. These are your guardian spirits, usually linked to specific landmarks and things in nature. Many of these Hittite tutelary deities are gods of the countryside. Tarhun sends one of these guardian spirits, but Frost freezes him too. Tarhun calls his son Telepinu. He says, This son of mine is mighty. He breaks up the ground, plows, irrigates, and plants green crops. Surely he will save us. But again, Frost holds him too. Eventually, Tarhun must take action himself. Tarhun and Frost actually speak together, likely even had dinner together. Tarhun's hands stick to his cup and he begs Frost that even if he freezes Tarhun's hands and feet, he asks him to not freeze his eyes, too. What we have next is a catastrophe. Tarhun and several other gods are frozen. Frost is still rampaging across the land, and Aruna still holds the sun god in a big jar somewhere. What are the gods going to do? But unfortunately, the tablet ends. There is no real ending, and the climax of this story is not resolved. But since the world is not a gigantic ice ball, presumably the sun god was eventually found in the vessel, released, and frost went away. If this sun god myth is in the same pattern as the myths where other gods disappear, perhaps in this case he was found by Hannah Hannah, who often solved the problems in those other stories too. Another fragment of a Hittite sun god myth actually has a god interacting with human beings. So far, the Hittite myths only involve gods, 
except for the Tarhun versus Ilyanka stories. But this next myth, which is not complete, could imply the existence of some Hittite human heroes. It starts with the sun god, Nepashash Ishtanu, one day looking down from the sky and seeing a cow far down below. He really liked this cow. You would think, a nice healthy cow? He might lead it off to join his other cows, right? But Nepashash Ishtanu really liked this cow. In fact, his desire leaped forward when he saw the cow. He went down from heaven, turned into a young man, and approached it. Who do you think you are to continually graze on this meadow? He asked it. The sun god really, really liked the cow. And the cow got pregnant, and after ten months, the animal gave birth. But something was wrong, and the new mother was not impressed. She was angry and yelled up to the sun god in the sky. Calf should have four legs. Why have I given birth to this two-legged thing? The cow did not want this baby, this monster, whatever it was. So the cow opened her mouth and tried to eat the baby. When Nepashashishjanu saw this, he probably let out a big sigh. The sun god came down to earth. Who do you think you are to gulp down the baby? He yelled at the cow. He then took the baby and left. The sun god gave the baby to his servant. He told the servant to put staff in hand, wear the winged winds on your feet as shoes, and take the baby. He told his servant what to do with the newborn. The baby was taken to a secluded spot, probably in the mountains, and left. All sorts of birds gathered around the baby, and many poisonous snakes, too. A short time later, a fisherman approached the child. All of the birds flew up together, and the snakes that were around the baby left. The fisherman stroked the child, and he thanked the sun god for leading him there since he himself had no child. He hugged the baby close and then took him home. The fisherman went back to his home city of Irma. He went to his wife and told her to take the baby into the bedroom and wail. The neighbors would hear and think she had given birth. So his wife did that, pretending that she had gone into labor and was giving birth to a child. The men of the city heard and began bringing food and drink to the house to celebrate the newly born son of the fisherman and his wife. What happened to our half-cow, son of the sun god? Again, right when we were getting to the good part, the tablet is broken. What do you think such a hero would get up to? There is one more myth of the sun god helping a childless couple. In the city of Sudal, there was a man named Apu. He was the richest man in all the land, and had many cattle and sheep, silver and gold. But Apu had no children. One day, the elders of Sudal and their families ate with him. One elder gave bread and grilled meat to his own son. Another gave drink to his son. But Apu had no one to give anything to. After the meal, Apu rose, went home, and lay on his bed with his shoes still on. Apu's wife questioned the servants on her husband's strange behavior, and then she went and lied down next to her husband with her clothes on. When he awoke, his wife asked, You have never been successful before. Have you now been successful? Apu replied curtly, You are a woman and think like one. You know nothing at all. Apu rose from the bed, grabbed a white lamb, and set off to meet the sun god. The sun god looked down from the sky, turned into a young man, and approached Apu. He asked, What is your problem, that I may solve it for you? Apu told him the gods had given him great wealth, but that he did not have a son or daughter. Ah, of course. I know what to do. Go get drunk. Go home and have good sex with your wife. The gods will give you one son. Apu's wife became pregnant and had a son. The midwife put the baby on Apu's knees and he began playing with his new child. He named him Rong, 
a name we can all agree is terrible to give a child. Later, even though the sun god told Apu he would have one child, Apu's wife became pregnant again. When the baby was born, Apu named him Wright. The two brothers grew up and eventually divided Apu's estate between them. Rong said to Wright, Since the mountains dwell separately, and the rivers flow separately, I say this to you, the sun god dwells in Sippar, the moon god dwells in Kuzina, the storm god dwells in Kamiya. As the gods dwell separately, so let us dwell in separate places. Wrong and right divided up the estate while the sun god watched from above. There was a good strong plow ox and an old tired cow. Wrong took the good ox and gave right the bad quality cow. The sun god saw this and decreed that right's bad cow become a good cow and that it should give birth to more cows. It is unclear what happens next. The tablet fragment features wrong and right quarreling probably over the cow Rong thought was a bad one. The brothers went to the sun god, and then the goddess Shashka for judgment. It's not clear what the final result was. So, that's the Hittite sun god, and I've already talked about the Hattian sun goddess, Wurunshimu. But as it happens, there is one more Hittite sun goddess. This one is called the sun goddess of the earth. How can she be both a sun goddess and an earth goddess? Well, like how the sun is only in the sky during the day, this sun goddess travels to the Hittite underworld at night. Since she was a connection between the heavens and the deep underworld, the sun goddess of the earth mediated interactions between the heavenly gods above and the earthly ones below. She's a pretty active lady. Hittite hymns describe her as being in heaven, the sea, mountains, and of course the underworld. The goddess was worshipped throughout the Hittite empire and was important for rulers. She made whoever she favors the king and granted victory in war. She also caused cattle and sheep to fatten, and crops to grow. As for partners, the goddess was linked to multiple male gods. Sometimes her husband is a god named Sulinkati. Sometimes she is also paired with the storm god Tarhun himself. In those traditions, her sons are also storm gods. As for partners, the sun... As for partners, this goddess was linked to multiple male gods. Sometimes her husband is a god named Sulinkati. Sometimes she is also paired with the storm god Tarhun himself. In those traditions, her sons are also storm gods. When the sun goddess of the earth was in the underworld, she served as its queen. She was the one who controlled the gates of the underworld. Sometimes she would open them up and send minor gods and spirits to free Hittite households of sin, curses, broken oaths, and bloodshed. She purified the earth of impurity and illness. But she also sometimes opened the gates to let these bad things reach the earth. The sun goddess of the earth was an equivalent of the Hurian underworld queen, Alani, and was also very similar to the earlier Mesopotamian goddess, Erish Kegel, whose name means queen of the great earth. The Hittites used both these names, Alani and Erish Kegel, to refer to her. So, anyway, this sun goddess of the earth this Erish Kegel, this Alani, she was the ruler of the underworld. But what exactly was the Hittite underworld like? The Hittites called the underworld the Dark Earth. It was a subterranean realm where the Chthonic spirits and the shades of the dead dwelt. It was also an accessible place. Through holes, pits, shafts dug straight down into the ground, graves, and caves. But the best way to get there was with water. The gods used springs and rivers as ways to enter the underworld. 
The Hittite Dark Earth was broadly imagined as a large wasteland with a city in the middle. The city had seven layers of walls and a barred gate led through each. At the center was a palace where the Queen of the Underworld lived. The Dark Earth also contained bronze vessels with lead lids and iron latches. Things that went into these never came out. For the Hittites, death was undesirable, feared, and people hoped it was a long way away. In the afterlife, people were reunited with their ancestors, but sisters by the same mother do not recognize each other. Brothers from the same father do not recognize each other. A mother does not even recognize her own child. The dead did not eat good food either. They did not drink good drink. Instead, they ate bits of mud and drank only muddy water. This is not an optimistic outlook for the afterlife, but ideas on what the underworld were like were likely inconsistent. It's possible that there was a nice meadow afterlife, possibly reserved for the king. There are references in Hittite literature to a pleasant meadow where cows, sheep, horses, and mules all graze together. It's not easy to see how this afterlife fits in with the other dreary, dysotopian afterlife. It could be just a separate location within the Dark Earth. It could also originally have been part of another tradition. It should be clear at this point that Hittite mythology was a layer cake of different mythological traditions from different communities, all stacked up on top of each other. Nevertheless, even though the Dark Earth was maybe not the most hospitable place for dead humans, for visiting gods, you could say that they roll out the red carpet. There is a Hurrian myth fragment where the Queen of the Underworld prepares for a visit from the great storm god himself. The tablet uses the Queen's Hurrian name, Alani, the Lady, and uses the Hurrian name Teshub for the storm god. The Mistress of the Underworld holds a great feast in her palace. Elani, ever the attentive hostess, serves the guests herself. Coming to the feast is the storm god Teshub, his brother and helper, the god Tashmishu, and a group of other gods called the primeval deities. These are older generations of gods, and they live in the dark earth. When Teshub arrives at Elani's palace, a special place was set for him. He sat down on a throne and put his feet up on a stool, while he waited for the feast to begin. While the dead spirits eat and drink only disgusting things, the gods at this feast eat large amounts of delicious food. Alani worked hard to throw the feast. She slaughtered 10,000 cattle and 30,000 fat sheep, but there was no counting the young goats and lambs, because so many of them were slaughtered. The bakers made their wares ready, the cupbearers came in, the cooks set up their briskets and brought them in bowls. The mealtime arrived, and Teshub sat down to eat. Alani sat the primeval gods to Teshub's right, while Alani herself stepped up in front of Teshub and acted as a cupbearer. She served her guests drink from an animal-shaped vessel. We can assume the feast was a success. The purpose of this feast is unknown. Maybe it was just a friendly get-together between gods. Some scholars speculate that Alani is holding this feast in order to reconcile Teshub with the earthy inhabitants of the Dark Earth, who he was sometimes opposed to. So that is our last Hittite sun goddess, and the underworld land she ruled. There is evidence that the sun goddess of the earth was a Luwian Nashite goddess, and probably not in the older Hattian religion. Originally, archaeologists think that the Hattians instead had a ruler of the underworld named Lelwani. At first, he was a male god, and called king and lord in texts. But over time, he was mixed with the female Alani Hurian underworld queen and came to be described as a woman. 
Going back to the two descriptions of the underworld, as either a dark, scary place with a walled city, or a pleasant meadow with livestock, you have here differences in the ruler of the underworld too, either a king, Lelwani, or a queen. All in all, there are a lot of different ideas of the underworld, all banging around in the Hittite psyche. While I'm talking about the Hittite underworld, I should also talk about the Gulsas, the Hittite fate goddesses. The Hittites had a pair of goddesses, named Istustea and Popea. Those names are Hattian, indicating that these goddesses go back to the very beginnings of Hittite mythology, like the storm god's family. Both of these goddesses hold filled mirrors, probably pools of reflected water, but one of them also holds a spindle, and Istustaya and Papea together spin the thread that makes up mortals' lifespans. That sure sounds a lot like the three fate goddesses from Greek mythology, but unlike the Greek goddesses, Istustaya and Papea do not live in the Hittite underworld. Instead, they spin their thread while sitting on the beaches of the Black Sea. And that's all for today. If you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the pod a five-star review. You can also send me a comment at www.mythmadness.com. Stay tuned till next time, and thank you for listening.